2: It's Jim Kramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action.
3: Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to another hour of Squawk on the Street. I'm Sarah Eisen with Carl Cantania. Live for you, as always, from Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange, David Faber has the morning off. Take a look at stocks. Taking a step back here, S&P down a tenth of 1%. And it's groups like Materials, Financials, and Consumer Discretionary keeping the keeping the declines from being worse. They're all higher. What's not energy is the biggest laggard as far as sectors, real estate, industrials, utilities all down. NASDAQ Composite down a third of 1%. We're still up week to date thanks to yesterday's big rallies. I'll just note Tesla's having a little comeback today. NVIDIA and Meta are higher as well, ahead of some big Magnificent 7 earnings this afternoon out of Alphabet and Microsoft. Treasuries continue their rally we got after the refunding announcement yesterday came in a little less than expected. We saw a big rally, actually. The 10-year note yield remains lower again, just above the 4% level. 30 minutes into the trading session, here are three big movers we're watching. Shares of UPS dropping, delivering a fourth-quarter revenue miss and disappointing guidance. UBS also laying off 12,000 positions as demand remains soft. Shares of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines moving big time. They are now filing for an expedited appeal to that court ruling that blocked their $3.8 billion merger. JetBlue CEO will be on Power Lunch to discuss it later today. Shares a Block moving higher, the fintech company getting a couple of bullish calls today. BTIG upgrading to buy with an $85 target. Wedbush upgrades Block to outperform, raises its price target to 90 from 70. And then one more, GM in the green after a top and bottom line beat and strong guidance there. GM CEO Mary Barra is gonna join us in just a few moments to break down the quarter and the outlook.
4: Market here reacting to some fresh data
5: on the consumer and confidence. Let's get to Rick Santelli. Hey, Rick. Hi, Carl and me. There's some big surprises here. Look at that chart of interest rates popping up. Consumer confidence. This is from the conference board. January numbers. Headline expected at 114.8, and that's exactly what we had. And that happens to be the best level since Dec of 20. 21, And if we look at the present situation, it's rocketing from 147.2 to 161.3. Expectations a little more muted. 83.8, which is the best since July. However, there's an asterisk because last month uh, was revised significantly lower. 85.6 turns into 81.9 to give that 83.8 a comp back to July. Now, job openings, labor turnover for December. Always two months in arrears, expecting a number right around 8750000 A beat here. This breaks a three-month streak of lower job openings, 9026000 9026000 that is the biggest jobs opening number since September and last month had a revision from 8790 to $8,925, which also tends to break that three-in-a-row lower streak. But it doesn't matter. This month, popped back above nine million. You see interest rates moving up a bit. A couple of things quickly: uh, short covering in front of tomorrow's uh, ultimate uh, uh, two-day Fed meeting completion seems to be going on, especially in two-year. If you look at open interest and Germany uh, negative GDP, and finally, I find this really important. Not many pay a whole lot of attention. S&P core logic, but their housing price index year-over-year, year, not seasonally adjusted was the best level since DISA 22. That's good news. Sarah, back to you. All right. Rick
3: Santelli, thank you. It's the bond market not liking all the good news, uh, especially I think the job openings going above nine because we know that the Federal Reserve pays attention to it as it relates to the tighter labor market and it shows just the availability for workers continues to be strong and the appetite continues to be strong from big corporations. I'll just add to the, to the good news from the IMF this morning. We got the World Economic Outlook they update this quarterly and it was actually an upgrade for the world economy from where they were last October. 3.1% growth is what is expected globally now for 2024. Now it's a little bit higher, 0.2% higher than what we got. If you look across the individual economies, I mean India by far is the big is the big grower this year, expecting six and a half percent growth. They take up the forecast for China because of some of the stimulus from from the government that we've gotten there, 4.6% growth. And in the U.S., IMF is expecting a healthy 2.1% growth this year. Europe manages to avoid recession, according to the IMF. And Japan also looks a little better. And I would just add on top of that, Carl, the IMF also expects inflation to come down faster as well. So there's the soft landing. And it, and it's not just a U.S. story. It's confirmed globally by IMF. We'll see if central banks can can actually deliver it. But they now expect inflation to be less of a threat and growth to outperform. And that's been the story of the market and the U.S. economy in 2023. They expect it to continue. Uh, a
4: lot of the colors interesting, too. Uh, talk about, quote, remarkable resilience in the global economy. We are very far from a global recession scenario. And they see oil dropping 2% this year.
3: Yeah, I mean they do. They warn a little bit about some of the shipping problems that we, the Red Sea, but
4: limited impact.
3: Limited impact so far. Also geopolitical issues. They warn about Ukraine and, and the Middle East. They note that 11 percent of world trade does pass through the Red Sea. So it, it's a threat, no question about it, to global trade. But you're right. I mean it, it's a it's mostly a positive report, which stands in a little bit of contrast to some of the results and outlooks that we got from major companies. I would just note Whirlpool is one of them. They weren't on the housing market and the impact there. UPS as well, which we're going to talk about. Let's hit GM, though, because that was positive. And take a look at shares. Over the last year or so, they've been strong, and they're strong this morning after results. Let's get to GM CEO Mary Barra alongside our Phil LeBeau. Mary, it's good to have you. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. You know, there, there's a lot, a lot going on with the strike impact and the UAW contract and cruise. How, how's the underlying business, though, doing for you?
6: Uh, the underlying business is, is doing quite well. We have a, a really strong internal combustion engine portfolio. Uh, that we continue to do very well and we see growth opportunities this year or this year building on what we did last year. Uh, from an EV perspective, we also see this is our year to really execute and see growth there. So uh, it's it's a uh, strong performance in 23. I'm really proud of the team. And I think 24 can be another strong year.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're giving a pretty positive outlook here. Some are wondering whether you're setting the bar too high sure. out of the gate, given some of the, the weakness that we're seeing across EVs.
6: Well, but if you look at the entire market, we think we're going to have another 16 million unit market. You just uh, shared uh, at the beginning of your show uh, how the economy is improving. We see that. And we still, you know, we ended the year uh, with low inventory across many of our key segments. So this is going to be an important year, again, for our internal combustion engine programs as well as our, our EVs. And, EV. Now that we have uh, really solved the module constraint, and we think that'll be behind us by the middle of the year, we have uh, several vehicles out into the out already that we're going to be getting to dealers and getting into customers' hands, and we have several we're launching this year.
3: But do Americans really want them? We kind of got tepid, tepid outlook from Tesla. There are all sorts of signals. Hertz giving back a third of its EV fleet. That the demand just I, isn't what it's thought to be.
6: I think uh, you know uh, on a transformation is big as this. I don't think anyone expected it to be linear. Last year in the United States, it was about 7% of the total market. Even the lowest forecast by outside Analyst uh, is that it's going to be about 10%. So that still represents strong growth. And I think this is where General Motors is uniquely positioned. We didn't have uh, as many EVs as we had strong demand for. For instance, with the Cadillac Lyric, we've seen sequential improvement as we've had availability of sales uh, starting in September. And we see that strength carrying in. Even in January, we think it will match what we did in December, even when you look at all the weather across the country that stopped people from buying vehicles. So again, with our particular portfolio. Uh, we also have 100,000 uh, either orders or reservations for our EV pickups, and we're planning to, as we increase production, deliver those through 24 and 25. So I think with the specific products that we have, we're well positioned. Of course, we also have flexibility. And so if uh, EV demand is lower uh, than that 10 percent uh, growth rate, we'll be able to index back and forth between ICE and EV. Two of our plants, uh, one in Spring Hill, Tennessee, and one in Ramos, uh risk mexico have the ability to build either ice or ev and even at our factory zero we can switch between the different evs so we've got flexibility to respond but i do think for general motors we're going to see an increase in the evs that we sell this year
2: mary it's phil um while you are expecting an increase in ev demand you're also going to be doing some pivoting here and Uh, answering what a lot of dealers are calling for, which is for more hybrids. And these will be plug-in electric hybrids. You haven't put a target out there, or at least you didn't with the analyst call just a few minutes ago. How much demand do you expect to be out there in terms of hybrids?
6: Well, you know, just like uh, the EV demand has has been an up and down uh, uh, trajectory, we've seen that with hybrids. A few years back, um, hybrid demand was dropping um, uh, pretty quickly. So we're going to have a balanced approach. You know, when we look at it, uh, we are still committed to an all-EV future and getting our light-duty portfolio, all-EV, by 2035. But in, in between um, uh, now in 2035, we think hybrids will play a role, especially as the charging infrastructure continues to build, and also um, to meet a, a more stringent regulatory environment. So I don't have a specific forecast. We'll be able to flex. Again, this is technology we've already deployed in other regions, so we'll deploy it in North America when we think it's it's best suited to help us meet the regulatory requirements. But I would say, Phil, for 2024, with the availability and the interest that we have in our Altium-based EVs, I think we're going to see great growth
2: there. Mary, I want to ask you about Elon Musk's comments regarding Chinese automakers and his words saying that they will demolish all other automakers if there are not trade restrictions put in place. And obviously, we have them here in the United States. But much of the world doesn't. And you manufacture in China and you export out of China. But if things don't change, do you foresee a possibility that General Motors might someday say, you know what, This is this is not for us. We cannot play here in China unless it's a fair playing field.
6: Well, you know, we're seeing a lot of change in the Chinese market already uh, with, you know, over 100 domestic EV manufacturers, although many of them are not profitable. We're. um, you know, really evaluating our business of where we can win. We're getting more EVs launched this year, and I think that's going to be very important, as well as uh, preparing to sell some of our iconic uh, both uh, EVs across our brands uh, in the marketplace. So, you know, China's an important market uh, and has still tremendous growth opportunity. So we're looking, as, a, as the market changes dramatically, how we, how we play there. More broadly, um, you know, I don't underestimate any competitor that we have in this industry. And where GM needs to be in whatever market we're competing in, we need to have beautifully designed vehicles with the right technology, the right customer experience, and do it at a cost point which we can compete. I would say we do have to have a level playing field um, in each of those markets. And so that's what we'll continue to advocate for. But I think having winning products that customers want to buy is critically important.
2: What about a return follow up oh, okay. on Mary? On, go, go, ahead, go, go ahead, Sarah.
3: No, I was just going to ask about Well, the return- my, my follow
2: up, Mary, would be <laughs> I'm sorry, Mary. Let me do a quick follow up. When you talk with election or elected leaders, whether it's Mexico, whether it's some of the countries in South America where you have a pretty good footprint, uh, have you expressed to them, look, the Chinese are dumping in vehicles here 20 to 30 percent cheaper than what we're able to do. And it's just not good for the market. And it's not good for the market overall. Um, What do they say to you?
6: Well, again, Phil, I'm not going to cover specific conversations we have with uh, key country leaders where we participate, but we talk about uh, what's what's necessary to have a strong business and to provide. Uh, you know, we have in South America many locations. We have local operations that are very important to those countries. So we continue to say what what is important. It does have to be a level playing field, but we also have to do our part and make sure we're uh, we're competitive and we can meet those challenges. So. That's what we're continuing to do. That's why there's such a, we have such a focus on optimizing our capital spend as well as getting our cost structure right across each of these different markets.
3: Yeah, I was just going to ask about profitability in, in the Chinese market and, and your level of confidence of when that can happen.
6: Well, I mean, we have a, a profitable uh, business. Uh, we are doing some inventory adjustments in this first quarter, so we expect first quarter will be a loss. But overall, for our China business, we think it'll be a, in '24 about the same that it is in '23. So it will be a profitable business. That's a combination of internal combustion vehicles and mm-hmm. um, EVs. Uh, but but longer term, as we uh, continue to expand the EV portfolio, you know, we've got to continue to get to get cost out. I think the um, the Pressure on price, I think, is something that's not going to stain for a long time. I think uh, Mm. when you look at, again, the number of uh, EV companies that they have, we really have to get to a point where all companies are profitable. And I think there's a lot of structural change to still happen in the Chinese market. And, uh, you know, we're going to continue to adjust our business to be able to remain profitable and compete.
3: Mary, got to ask about Cruise, because I know you're going to spend a billion less on that, and that was encouraging for investors. But now we know that the DOJ and the SEC are investigating this incident in October where a woman was dragged 20 feet. What is next for this company? Because they had to recall the cars. I think you said you're still fully committed to Cruise. What happens?
6: Well, uh, you know, from a um, from that incident, which was tragic, and our hearts go out to this woman who is still recovering. Uh, so we're, we are focused on making sure we do the right thing. Uh, the vehicles weren't recalled. There was a recall made to change the software to update for the specific uh, improvements that were needed based on this specific incident. But as we look back, uh, and we've done a complete review. We will cooperate with the DOJ and the SEC. Uh, I think the, the report that was done demonstrates uh, that uh, you know, we've taken the right steps, addressed the issues. We're uh, adopting all of the recommendations that were made. The core to it, though, is as we launch crews, because we have complete faith in the underlying technology, what we have learned is that although we had demonstrated that the technology was safer than a human driver, humans have a higher expectation for technology than they do than we do with each other. So we're defining that right now, In the upcoming weeks and months, we will lay out our new plan for crews, but we believe in the technology, and also, more importantly, we believe in the life-saving opportunity that this technology can provide, because right now, today, on the roads, 90% of fatalities are caused by human error. So we believe in the technology. We are continuing to invest, but as we go forward, we're going to do it in a way that we've worked with regulators at the local, state, and federal level, as well as work with first responders in the communities and make sure the community understands. So there's a lot of work to do, but we have confidence, and that's the plan we're working on right now. Got it. Mary,
3: thank you very much. We, we certainly appreciate your time today on Earnings Day. Thank you. Mary Barra, CEO of General Motors, as we had a break. And thank you to Phil, by the way, as well. Here's our roadmap for the rest of the hour. Citadel's Ken Griffin is speaking with our Leslie Picker about the record rally, inflation, the Fed and the economy. We've got that exclusive for you coming up.
4: Fed kicks off a two-day meeting today on rates. We've got exclusive results of our CNBC Fed survey on when economists do expect the Fed to begin cutting and by how much...
3: And reviews of Apple's Vision Pro headset are out. Wall Street Journal personal technology columnist Joanna Stern joins us. Big show still ahead. Squawk on the street. Back after a break.
4: Let's get down to the MFA Network conference in Miami where Leslie Picker is sitting down with Citadel's Ken Griffin. Let's listen in live. We'll do that in a bit. In the meantime, uh, markets have been all over the place. Started out with some decent action uh, as a result of some of the enthusiasm regarding some industrial guidance. But then it was uh, really conference board and jolts that came in at the top of the hour. Best consumer confidence number in a couple of years. Best jobs opening number since September. Uh, the tenure did tick up close to 409. And that's taken a little wind out of equity sales, Sarah.
3: Yeah, I mean... It's like you, you want good data and we don't want a recession, but we, we don't want it too hot, or at least the market doesn't. And that's maybe the, the, the sell-off that we're seeing in bonds. Also, Treasuries rallied big yesterday after that refunding. I love that this has become a market-moving announcement Remember, last year, it was when the Treasury said it had to borrow over a trillion dollars, which was what spooked the market. And we got that big backup in yields. The last two announcements have been better on that front. The next hurdle to clear is going to be tomorrow morning when the Treasury breaks down the auction sizes. But the implication is it's not going to have to borrow as, as much. Fiscal picture improves just a little bit. And I think that's why... That's why the rally. But as far as the job openings at 9 million, I think that'll get the Fed's attention, right? It's the first day of the the Fed meeting. And we know the Fed's gonna be on hold tomorrow, but the question is, do do they change their guidance? And how does Fed Chair Powell telegraph how he's thinking about when is appropriate to start cutting and why?
4: Uh, The quit rate, uh, pretty steady at 2.2, basically in line with where we were before the pandemic began. Uh, and, of course, the quit rate has a large impact on implied wage growth. Pantheon yesterday uh, accelerated the quit rate by a couple of quarters. It's right in line with wages growing at about three and a quarter. Uh, we'll keep our eye on that. Let's get back to Miami.
8: More in the pro-independence action of the Taiwanese uh, political class, and yet China was able to be very thoughtful in its choice of words and to, to, I wouldn't say embrace the moment, but to play through the moment in a constructive way. And we need that tone in this world. If there were a rupture around Taiwan, it would be catastrophic to both the Chinese and the American economy. And by catastrophic, I think you're looking at Great Depression circumstances.
9: If there were some sort of, you say rupture, a war, some sort of attack.
8: If we lost access to Taiwanese semiconductors, how many weeks until Tesla stops making cars? Or GM or Ford or Boeing stops making planes those chips are used in every part of our economy estimates range from a GDP hit of between 8 and 10 percent if we lost access to Taiwanese semiconductors so it's really important as a matter of national economic security that we're able to maintain peace in that region of the world
9: what about American competitiveness with China? Uh, you, you touched on that briefly. Elon Musk said last week the only thing stopping Chinese EV makers is protectionism, basically trade barriers. BYD dethroned Tesla in the fourth quarter as the top EV seller. And then just this morning, GM came out, reported a steep decline in operating income, in part due to losses from its EV unit. What do you make of the, the state of American competitiveness? with China, especially as it pertains to some of our, our key, uh, key industries, EVs, chips, et cetera?
8: So you, solar, EVs, consumer electronics, these are all areas in which the Chinese have done extraordinarily well from a competitive perspective. And, and watching BYD surpass Tesla in global sales was a, was a bit of a heartbreaking moment. But we, we often lose sight of the fact that the Chinese economy represents 1.4 billion people. So they have a huge advantage when it comes to simple economies of scale, combined with a strong education system that produces four times as many STEM graduates. We've got a real competitor in China. And, and Elon's right that the, that the West has to grapple with the issue, Europe in particular, California, trying to achieve a very, very different future in terms of how we, how we consume energy and an EV-led future in particular. California wants no internal combustion cars in the foreseeable future. Are we going to make that happen by buying Chinese vehicles? Hmm. Because that's the most cost-effective way to do so for American consumers. What do you think? I think that's a really hard pill to swallow.
9: So what would you suggest from a policy standpoint?
8: From a policy perspective, how fast do we need to push the drive towards EVs? How much do we need to accelerate that at a moment in time where the US companies, your Fords and GMs are still trying to catch up with Tesla? And Tesla has one great asset. Elon is a phenomenal entrepreneur. And I think that don't lose sight of the fact that Tesla makes a great car, but there's an opportunity at Tesla to create the software platform for the future of automobiles. Hmm. The self-driving car, good chance will first happen at Tesla.
9: Um, speaking of policy, I alluded that we were going to talk a little politics. We may need a music change, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep Or is keep this going to be like through. the funeral song? <laughs> um, in the fall, it was reported that you were contemplating supporting Nikki Haley for president. Did you ultimately support her? And what's your thinking in this current post Iowa, post New Hampshire cycle?
8: So here's, here's the big picture. We're down to to two people on the Republican side running for president. I have supported Nikki Haley. I think she is a tremendous candidate. And I've been pretty consistent. I wish on both sides we would have a candidate of a younger generation. Now, big picture, Trump's running on a record of success. His four years were really good policies for America. And to be clear, I think a lot of Americans want a safer world. And I think we all felt safer with Trump as president than we do right now. I mean, we're, we've got a war in the Ukraine, we've got a terrible situation in the Middle East. I think the United States has failed to demonstrate strength and commitment to our allies in a way that has really undermined the global order. So I know many of us, me included, you know, struggle with some of Trump's behaviors, but there was a dimension of greater global security with him as president, particularly from US interests. So I think that's a, that's a really important tailwind that he's enjoying right now. And then, frankly, for all the talk of, of, the, of Trump taking away our democracy, i got to tell you, American voters are really disturbed by what happened in Colorado. They took him off the list of candidates. I mean, like, wow. Republicans fight for whether or not you show up with an ID to vote, and the Democrats just remove the, the opponent from the ballot. That's a, that's a really dark world. So I think Trump's got both the benefit of, of having the proven success that he had as president, the sense of global insecurity that makes voters anxious, and he, he I mean to be blunt, he's the martyr right now. You know, he is under criminal, 90 uh, some different felony charges. His name's been removed from ballots. It's, it's hard not to feel some level of just like, this is just wrong. This is just unfair, and frankly, as a voter, I want my vote to determine who is the president and not some clever legal maneuvers by somebody on the opposing aisle, side of the aisle. So it's, it's a really interesting moment, and then, you know, frankly, I think Nikki Haley would run away with the general election. I Do think you think
9: she, at this point she still has a pathway to getting the nomination?
8: It, it, it's a narrower road than it was eight weeks ago it's just narrower and I think part of this is is fueled by the by the geopolitical backdrop the events recently in the Middle East over the even the last couple of days right we we now have dead Americans three three Americans killed in service that's heartbreaking and I think there's a sense of of do we want to return to a president who's just viewed as more powerful more in charge and that's gonna be difficult for Nikki to overcome right now her poise admirable her foreign policy experience, tremendous. Her ability to unite this country, phenomenal. I just don't know though, that at this moment that's gonna get her where she needs to get to in South Carolina and thereafter.
9: In a Trump-Biden matchup, would you support Trump?
8: I would probably um, be where I, the prior group said 70% of Americans don't want that matchup. I'm in the
9: 70%. <laughs> so maybe you'll sit this one out?
8: Uh, you know what, here's, here's the big picture. And I, i've said this to my friends who are involved in politics you can be frustrated you can be angry you can be disappointed but you can't be uninvolved so i've been involved in a number of the senate races a number of the house races i'll be very deeply involved here in florida and florida races locally just because we can struggle with who our choice of president is doesn't mean that we have to walk away from the field you know there's people like david mccormick running in pennsylvania david has served our nation West Point grad successful in business he would bring to DC the gravitas that we want gravitas
9: worked in this industry
8: Worked in this industry don't hold that against him <laughs> But he would bring the gravitas that we want in people who serve in public service. He, he put his life on the line for the country That's we want in DC people that will put America first
4: so i'm i'm going to be very involved in, in that's leslie picker so with uh, citadel's ken griffin in miami you can watch more of that live exclusive interview right now on cnbc.com interesting comments and a reminder of just how influential uh, ken is when it comes to national politics and fundraising a uh, more interesting though was the discussion of a potential global depression in his words if in fact there were to be an all-out war between china and taiwan and what would happen if our Supply of chips got cut off.
3: Yeah, I mean, in nobody's interest, he says, U.S. or China's, but especially in the U.S., a global depression, right? How many days before Tesla would have to stop making EVs? Just as an example, he threw out there as far as how destructive and catastrophic it would be. Um, So that is clearly a big risk that he's thinking of. And then in in politics, it was notable that he said he's been supporting Nikki Haley, and he spoke very fondly of her, but, but said that the path for her getting the nomination winning the primary has narrowed, given President Trump is, as he says, and he's said this many times, a martyr now because he's facing all of these, these charges. He's kind of dodged the, I would vote for Trump over Biden if that was the two, because he wants younger candidates. He said like 70% of Americans doesn't want to see that matchup, but is, is working toward local races instead.
4: He is in the soft landing <laughs> camp, uh, says unlikely we get another hike, but uh, sees the first cut potentially coming this summer.
3: Right. So sort of where the market is right now. Um, We've got to hit a number of these stocks on the move today, especially in the transportation sector. UPS at the very top of the list there. It is down sharply, almost 8 percent. Frank Holland tracking those movers. Morning, Frank.
10: Hey, good morning to you, Sarah. You know, the the broader Dow transports, they're falling more than one percent, almost one and a half percent. Far underperforming the market on the back of those disappointing UPS earnings. So we're going to take a look at the the transport sector right now, software guidance and a revenue, revenue miss moving UPS lower. The company also announced it will lay off 12,000 workers. On the call, CEO Carol Tomei says those cuts will be mostly managers. UPS is also seeking a strategic alternative for its supply chain business that generated just about 14 percent of revenue last quarter. The impact of the Teamsters contract and a slower macro environment, both of those weighing on UPS. You can see here rival FedEx moving lower on the report along with smaller e-commerce player Pitney Bowes. On the other side, a big move to the upside for Spirit Airlines, at least in part due to a report that the airline filed a motion to expedite the appeal of a block merger with JetBlue. A judge refused to allow the merger this month, saying it would hurt U.S. airline competition. You can see JetBlue
4: shares, however, they continue to move lower right now. Back over to you. Frank Holland, thanks so much. Uh, What an important story today. Meantime, uh, make or break week of four earnings and the Fed ahead of that decision tomorrow. We're going to check in with Goldman's uh, chief equity strategist, David Costin to break it all down after a short break.
10: Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at t slash now.
4: The Fed kicks off its two-day meeting today, but before the central bank makes that decision on rates, our Steve Leisman is going to give us the results of the latest CNBC Fed survey. Morning, Steve.
1: Morning, uh, Carl. In contrast to the market's aggressive outlook for rates, uh, the uh, CNBC Fed survey sees things happening later and sees them happening uh, uh, not going quite as far as the market expects. That outlook was bolstered in just the past few minutes by the better-than-expected JOLTS report. Just 9% see a March cut in the Fed survey. That rises to even money for May. Only in June is there a majority of 70% looking for that rate hike. While futures the futures markets may have priced in almost six hikes. Respondents on average see just a bit more than three. The Fed is expected to end quantitative, tightening the reduction of its balance sheet, that is, In November. Meanwhile, the probability of a recession remains elevated, but it's fallen to 39%. That's the lowest level since the spring of 2022. Looks like the 25 respondents on average are forecasting the Fed will cut rates every other meeting. You can see that in those little spikes in uh, uh, what you have there in September and December, along with June. Uh, While respondents predict a cautious Fed on balance, they think the Fed should be more aggressive. 56% say. The bigger risk here is that the Fed cuts rates too late. 44% say the risk is going too early. Mike, England of Action Economics writing into the survey. The risk is that the slowdown in both growth and inflation proves smaller than assumed and the Fed moves too soon to lower rates. 56% of respondents say stocks are overpriced right now for a soft landing. That's kind of bullish for this usually bearish crowd, but 92% say, hey, if we have a recession, stocks indeed are overpriced. Just a quick note on that Jolts report, the probability of a March hike declining to 37% with the news that job openings increased more than expected. That's down 10 points. And you'll remember, guys, uh, uh, Sarah, not too long ago between the meetings, the probability that March hike was north of 80%. Sarah? Uh, March cut, you mean.
3: March cut?
1: March cut, sorry. March cut. Yes, March cut.
3: Yeah. So, I mean... Uh, Steve, he he got he's got to keep options open for March. I guess I do wonder how the market's going to read his commentary and how he's going to thread that needle.
1: I think that's that's what everybody's going to be listening for. Um, as I've said several times, watch what the committee does in addition to what the chairman says. Last time, everybody went crazy over uh, what the chair said, but the committee did one thing on policy, and that was to add the word any, which was to kind of take <laughs> yeah. hikes off the table. The committee went whole hog on, on rate cuts.
3: I lo- love the language dissection to come. Thank you, Steve. Steve Leisman. Our next guest says equities will likely struggle if rates rise substantially from current levels because of shifts in Fed policy or the balance of Treasury supply and demand. Goldman Sachs, chief U.S. equity strategist, has an S&P target of 5,100, he joins us here at Post 9. David Coston, welcome to you, sir. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. You just got back from traveling the world, right? Europe and Asia. And I'm curious what you're hearing from global investors and what they're excited about.
11: So, Zara, for the last 30 years, uh, the macro strategy team at Goldman has traveled to Europe and Asia, as you indicated. we were in London, Paris, Zurich, and Frankfurt in the second week of January. We meet with a lot of sovereign wealth funds, <clears throat> investors, institutional investors. and We have an opportunity to exchange uh, views. And Then we head off to Asia, and we visit uh, clients in uh, Japan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. And so, There were sort of a couple of uh, takeaways I thought was interesting this year relative to to previous years. First of all, we do a survey, and um, about half of the portfolio managers are anticipating equity returns on a global basis, somewhere between zero and 10 percent, which is pretty consistent with our forecast. Uh, We're sort of up 3.5 percent already this year here in the United States. Now, maybe another 3.5 percent or so left to go, pretty modest uh, upside, as you indicated, Sarah, to maybe 5,100. That's pretty consistent. About half the portfolio managers were in that camp. Another third were in more. bullish and they're somewhere between 10 and 20 percent type of returns. That's kind of return expectations. They were all in on the United States, and that's unusual, because typically there's a home-region bias. You go to Asia, and there's sort of a bias in favor of the c- companies there, it's sort of understandable. They know them best. But that was not the case, both in Europe and in Asia. Most of the fund managers were uh, inclined towards seeing the U.S. as the best opportunity set. And Japan, Carl, was, uh, was one that they could have ranked number, number two kind of across the, across the world that we saw. And going to weigh down uh, third, you know, considerably down was was China. A lot of concerns around China expressed both in the region in Asia as well as uh, in the European investor community. And then Europe was uh, was sort of at the at the at the tail end. So that's sort of the re- geographic split. And then within the different sectors, people were more inclined towards technology. Not a shock there in terms of looking back in performance last year. Uh, number two is healthcare. That was the sort of second most interesting uh, opportunity set. And the last item, Sarah, is your favorite, the uh, Magnificent Seven versus the 493. There was a big, uh, big debate, and it was basically Carl kind of 50/50 split, <laughs> maybe a slight lean towards the uh, towards the, the Big Seven, but not. And that's in contrast with uh, with our view. My view is that uh, I lean sort of a little bit in the other direction, which is a broadening of the market, the other uh, 493, and sort of given a choice, actually, I'll take the 2,000, not the seven, not the 493. We'll take the Russell 2,000 and small caps, and that's right. sort of the. They're laid to land having just traveled around the world in two weeks.
4: Has any of the recent action in the Russell uh, made you question your call for small caps to, to do
11: better, at least? Well, the view within Goldman Economics is that the economy is actually growing pretty strongly, very strongly. And, uh, and as a consequence of that, that actually benefits the more domestic orientation here in the United States of the small cap stocks. They have 30 percent of their borrowings are floating rate. And so the idea of the Fed cutting... Uh, over the course of this year we will have a one-to-one benefit for uh, a lot of these companies where they have floating rate on the balance sheet, in contrast with some of the larger companies where there is actually uh, pretty stable balance, you know, strong balance sheets, but their debt isn't going to mature until past 2030, most cases, and there's not that much is a uh, floating rate. And that fits That's-
4: with Goldman in the March camp.
11: And that's, that's correct. That's sort of the idea there. And some of the net interest income for a lot of companies with strong cash, well, long, strong cash positions should diminish over time as the Fed is, uh, is cutting kind of five times, which is the baseline for the uh, the Goldman view. So that's the, that's the thought process there.
3: We just heard from Citadel founder and CEO Ken Griffin uh, about his thoughts on the market. He's been talking with Leslie Picker at the MFA conference. Listen what he says about the outlook.
8: It's a good day to be here to talk about the market, which is reaching all time highs. And we do look like we have put some of the economic anxiety of Q4 behind us. Good payroll numbers, good GDP growth, and most importantly, inflation is moderating at a, a pace that's frankly better than the market anticipated. We may get Goldilocks, we may get a soft landing or even no landing. We may be looking at a, at a moment in time where inflation this year is, is low twos, the Fed can start to cut rates come this summer, And we will see unemployment touch up a little bit. But the overall economy looks pretty damn good right now.
3: I I feel like that encapsulates exactly why stocks are running up here to record highs. How much of that view is in the market and can carry us further? Or do we need a new
11: catalyst? Well, I think a lot of that... Optimism is validated by the data, Skim is indicating, and that's consistent with uh, assumptions we're making in our baseline forecast, which is that earnings are rising maybe 5% this year, uh, mostly driven by nominal GDP, so the top line sales, not margin expansion. And so in that general trajectory, the idea of the market rising in line with uh, the path of uh, of earnings would be consistent with uh, S&P 500 around 5,100. A lot of that's priced in already and the expectations are there and i think the distribution of risks would be that the aggregate index for the s&p 500 trades at around 20 times earnings so historically a high level but most importantly those big magnificent 7 companies great businesses they trade at 30 times earnings in aggregate as a uh, as a collective group whereas the equal weighted index in the, uh, in the market trades at 15 times. And so given that, uh, that opportunity set, I'd say the risk, risk reward is pretty more attractive in some of the broadening of the market and the other 493 stocks. That's kind of our, 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 our positions. But not by a, I prefer those not by an enormous amount, but I think on the margin, they do a little bit better.
4: Finally, some of your peers around the street on, the, in the, on quant desks are looking at dot-com, parallels, bubble, uh, parallels. when you right. look at the concentration of, the, say, the top five right. in the MSCI.
11: Do you look askance at that? Uh, no. I think the, uh, the lesson of 2000 is very clear, that you had some of the leading dot-com companies, Intel, Microsoft, uh, Cisco, as examples. Expectations were high in terms of revenue growth. They actually came in pretty strong in terms of the actual realized of, uh, sales in, 20, to the, in 2001, 2002, but it wasn't the initial expectations that they were being priced on in 2000 march of 2000 and so consequently the multiples there uh, contracted quite quite dramatically now fast forward to today you don't have the dot com boom you have the ai euphoria the kind of the artificial intelligence lots of excitement these companies are expected to have revenue growth carl in the 12 percent range this year 24 and next year 25 relative to the rest of the market maybe three four percent five percent much more modest revenue growth as long as these companies can deliver on that revenue growth, then they can maintain a 30 multiple in aggregate for those, those groups of stocks. That's a, high, that's a high bar to keep growing that, uh, those growth rates. And for some of the companies, NVIDIA is expected to have sales growth like 60% this year, decelerating pretty sharply in 2025. But that's, you know, that's a consensus expectation. Well, they got to deliver on that. And if that, if that happens, they can maintain it. And so the risk, the balance of risk would be, you know, maybe more concerned.
3: Well, we'll learn a lot more in the coming days, starting this afternoon when Mag Seven starts reporting. David, thank you.
4: Sure. Always Carl. a pleasure. Thank you, David
3: Costen of Goldman Sachs.
4: Still ahead, uh, Apple's betting big on the Vision Pro. Reviews are officially out. We'll check in with Joanna Stern from the Wall Street Journal and get her take as we got some fresh forecasts for iPhone shipments as well. Stay with us. Moments ago, top Apple analyst Ming-Chi Kuo writes that his latest supply chain survey indicates that iPhone shipments for this year are likely to decline by 15% year on year. He says the main reason for the decline in the Chinese market is the return of Huawei and the increasing preference for foldable phones among high-end users as their first choice for phone replacement. Uh, plus, a slew of reviews out on this mor- this morning for the Apple's Vision Pro. The Verge's Nilay Patel calls it, quote, magic until it's not and points out that it represents a series of really big trade-offs that are impossible to ignore. CNBC's Todd Hazelton calls it, quote, future, the future of computer and entertainment. And the Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern, with her own review, says it is "quote the best headset yet," but notes that FaceTime feature is hilariously bad. Joining us here at Post Nine this morning is Joanna Stern of the Wall Street Journal, personal technology columnist, wearing it right now. How do you look? How, How do, do I, I look? look? How do I look? <laughs> you look good.
0: I look good. You look like an alien. Yeah.
4: You and see your my hair's eyes? Getting messed I up. do see your eyes, and you can see me.
0: I can see you guys. Great. I mean, I'm also working right now and and watching some some YouTube, but no, I'm, re- I'm really looking at both of you right now.
4: What, what, do you, what apps do you have open and what, what are they?
0: Well, as soon as I press that button, I see a view of a grid of apps. I can open Apple TV, music, mindfulness. Should we all meditate together? Safari, <laughs> photos. And so I can just, as I, as I show, tap and now one of them's open. That's is, it.
4: Is this the way we're going to work?
0: It is a way I think we can work. There are some drawbacks, but one of the things I was able to really do this this week in this is actually do some work. I mean, wrote my reviews, wrote my scripts, was able to slack and do all of those things. And that's one of the coolest things here is you can put these windows all in your environment. But, of course, there's the drawback of how long you're going to wear this for, right? You sit at your laptop all day, you literally all day. This weighs on your head all day.
4: And so there is there is an endurance question here how long how long how long have you worn it Uh,
0: my video review i challenged myself to wear 24 hours (laughs) full day full day i i did take the break to sleep Uh, i also took the break to go to the ski mountain in them because they look like ski goggles but i wore them pretty much consistently for some six to eight hour stretches and headaches no um headaches eye burning um a little bit of neck pain but are they meant to wear 24 hours a day? Absolutely not. These yeah. are meant okay. to wear for a couple of hours at a time, if you can even go that long. I think really the, I, I really think a movie is a good stretch to wear these. But of course, if you're also laying down, that takes some of the pressure off your head. They show these while you're wearing them on an airplane. I couldn't test that yet. There's a special travel mode for that. So I do think you're going to see these out and about with people <laughs> traveling.
3: Wild. But for $3,500, right, who, who's going to buy them and for what reason?
0: As I said in my review, I think this is a Apple diehard product right now. These are for the diehards. They're for the app developers. It's for somebody who wants to see a peek at what this future looks like. You put these on, and that's why I wore these for the 24 hours. What are we going to do with these in our daily lives eventually? I mean, one of the coolest things I did with this was cooking it. Okay, I was able to set timers in my environment, right over the pots, right to be able to see the the recipe on the wall. That's cool. These are all future use cases when this thing is lighter, when the battery life is better, when it isn't so buggy, when the display is better. This is a first-generation Apple product.
4: Is that what you mean when you say, and I don't want to misquote you, but the idea that this is not what we want yet, or they're messing with our heads? What does that mean? (laughs)
0: Right now, these tech companies want to make sleek glasses. They want to make those, right? But they can't do that. This is is what they can do. This is the best Apple could do right now. And it's really good. It is the best headset out there. But there are compromises. And so until they can get the tech there, I think they're messing with their heads.
4: Is um, Is it concerning, for lack of a better word, that YouTube, Netflix say not yet?
0: I think look, you can still watch them in the web browser. If they see that more, a lot of people are watching this in the web browser on this thing, they're going to make an app. They're going to bring their iPad app over. Maybe they want to work on a more immersive app and they just haven't gotten around to it. I, I think, you know, we, again, we're going to see the apps come. It's the first platform, first generation. Platform. What do you think is the best
3: use case so far that you've experienced for this?
0: Look, I know it's not meant for cooking, but I, I was actually blown away. Just the idea of putting the virtual. Some of the virtual stuff from your phone in your real environment, think about those times you're holding your phone. Cooking is the one I keep going to because you're poking at it with your dirty hands. You're setting the timer. You're coming back to it. I think also shooting video on this eventually. You want to be hands-free like Meta's doing with the Ray-Bans. That's not the use case right now. Right now, the best thing you can do with this is work and watch the movies.
4: Do you think we go back to any kind of behavioral pushback the way we had with Google Glass where... I think you look like a dork or somehow <laughs> conceited because you're wearing it.
0: You don't like my nerd helmet. No, I,
4: I liked it. I loved w- you, wearing these.
0: I, I mean, that's why I'm wearing them the whole show. I think I should. You know, you yes. got, we gotta get I'm used to I'm just saying, this. Wait, culturally, wait.
4: do you think Who looks that like a dork? You, you remember those days? Of
0: course, I remember those days. Of course, I remember those days. Look, Apple right now. This seems like a very at-home product. Other than traveling with it or your, you know, your office at home, maybe traveling. Are some nerds gonna wear this at the coffee shop? I wore it to the ski mountain just to, be, you know. To, to be a little funny, yeah. but people, this is not where we're. I, I don't think we can all walk around with these yet. Societally, it has to get to that more glasses looking for factor.
3: Do you, so you also did the whole. Yes,
4: thing. I, I, I was on for about an hour, uh, and I was. I think the, the movie theater. You look very good. The movie theater has reason <laughs> to worry because it, it felt like you were in an IMAX theater.
0: Absolutely, and then, look, there's something a little bit isolating about watching that movie right now. Apple actually says you can watch with somebody else. If me and you were in the same room watching a movie together, could do it. But absolutely, I mean, really, the only thing is miss- that's missing is comfortable big seats. Right.
4: Joanna, everyone should read your review. It's out this morning, and you look great.
0: Do you see my eyes yes, at all? See-
4: nope. No,
0: I can't see. The your one eyes. thing is, they, so they did this feature where you can see your eyes, but it is—it's just—it's it, very subtle, and you can't see it. And if you really want to be haunted, watch my persona.
4: Okay. Joanna, thanks. Thanks, Uh, guys. Joanna Stern of The Wall Street Journal. Uh, By the way, do not miss uh, the Cleveland's Cliffs CEO in just a moment. Money Movers is going to start right after this.
2: You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.
9: its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer.